I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Bruce Nyers of Nyers Vineyard and also Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant on the show uh, and back on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm just great, Levy. It's uh, wonderful to be back here. Good nice to, to spend some time with you again. Nice to see you. Good. So around the early 90s, you left Phelps. You joined Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant as a national sales manager, and you had designs on starting your own winery and vineyard. Yeah, I, I actually left Phelps with the intention of starting my own uh, wine business with Barbara. Barbara was working at Chez Panisse at the time, but uh, we had purchased a piece of land in Con Valley in 1984. Uh, we developed it over the next three years or so. We were about to get our first crop off of that vineyard in 1992. And the, uh, uh, the plan for me was to simply leave Phelps, make my own wine. I had worked out an arrangement with Kerner Rumbauer, he was going to lease a space. And from a financial standpoint, while I knew it was going to be a bit of a struggle to get it started, it, it made long-term sense to do it. And uh, Barbara had mentioned something to Alice Waters about it uh, right after the announcement was made uh, public enough that she could, in comfort, uh, tell Alice. And Alice, ironically, was having dinner with Kermit that night in San Francisco at the old Massa's restaurant. And Alice mentioned something to Kermit about it. Kermit got up and used the phone in the restaurant, I guess, called me at home, uh, answered the phone, and he said, well, don't do anything. I've got a great idea. And it turned out to be just that, a great idea. Uh, we met uh, the next day at the uh, uh, a real important wine destination spot, the Denny's on Interstate 80 in Vallejo. And we sat at the bar over a couple of cups of coffee and some bar napkins and worked out an arrangement. Uh, and he and I have been uh, working together ever since. So why did you pick the Con Valley as a destination for your own ranch? The, uh, there were, well, there were a couple of reasons. Barbara and I moved to the Napa Valley in 1972 but we lived in Napa, and then in uh, 1975, we moved to St. Helena. And Con Valley was close to the area where we first settled. We rented a, a small cottage on the Phelps property, actually. And Con Valley was reachable through the driveway that uh, went by our house. And from time to time, the, the road was very uh, rustic and not uh, easy to, to get over. But we would travel over there. And I really liked the solitude back there. So it was attractive. I liked the fact that it was colder uh, than the main Napa Valley floor, which Bob Travers had always cautioned me was really too warm for grape growing. Uh, go figure. But the combination that it had a little bit of a uh, lower climate, the land was a little bit less expensive, and most importantly, it was uh, hillside. And I'd only just worked 
growing grapes at Mayakamas and hillsides. So I felt very comfortable there. We spent most of 1983 and 84 seriously looking for property. We were living in downtown St. Helena by then. And we had a really good uh, a patient, I should say, real estate broker. And he would come over and meet with us uh, on Sunday mornings and bring a coffee cake that his mother had baked for us that morning. We'd sit around and look at the properties that were for sale, map out a strategy to go see as many of them as we could that day. And we would take Sunday then uh, maybe around 10 or 11 o'clock and go visit the few that seemed to, to make sense. And that proved to be a really frustrating exercise. Uh, nothing was within our budget, of course, and everything that seemed even within uh, reach of our budget was uh, had one or more things about it that really were, were going to prevent us from being able to, to do what we wanted. And then at the end of one particularly frustrating day, uh, Don Buhler, who was the realtor, he still operates as a real estate agent in St. Helena. Uh, Don said, well, you know, there's a place out in Con Valley. Uh, and I said, oh, I love Con Valley. And he said, well, this place hasn't gone on the market yet, but it's going to be listed tomorrow. And then there's an open house on Tuesday. If you want, we can go look at it. So we did, and we drove up to it, and uh, we had to, to get to the property. We had to cross over this beautiful old uh, uh, wooden bridge that uh, was structurally supported by a rail car, which was uh, a common way of building bridges over the, the creeks of uh, Northern California back in the 30s and 40s. And a rail car had been dropped from one bank of the creek to the other and a wooden frame built around it. So we had to cross it and I thought, wow, this bridge alone seems like it's worth a lot of money. And then we looked down, this was in September, uh, of 1984, and uh, there's Con Creek in all its beauty. Uh, this wild creek, it wasn't a torrential one, but it was uh, just a beautiful sort of meandering creek that you could imagine uh, spending a lot of time by if you live there. And then we drove onto the property. Uh, there were signs that grapevines had been there. We could see abandoned stakes and uh, an occasional grapevine here and there. And there was a very modest house on the property, modest in, uh, in, in many respects, but it was still livable. And the couple that was living there had inherited the property. They were from Los Angeles and had moved up there about a year before uh, with their young son. They were living there after his aunt, the husband's aunt, had died and left the property to him. And they decided that it was just too remote. It was only 10 minutes from downtown, but that was pretty remote, I guess, for someone from Los Angeles. And they were going to put it on the market, and we asked how much, and uh, it seemed like a stretch, a big stretch. But I, I mentioned to the uh, uh, realtor that I wanted to talk to, to Joe about it. I got in touch with Joe that Sunday night, explained to him uh, what had happened, what we'd seen. Joe Phelps. Joe Phelps. And Joe was very pessimistic, but that was Joe's way. I think he wanted as much as anything to feel me out and test me to make sure that I, I was confident about my decision. And uh, the next day he and I met and he said, all right, well, it looks like you're going to be pigheaded enough to go ahead with this. And, but if you are, here's what you probably ought to do. And he suggested that I make a counter offer, lower the price, have the seller take some of the mortgage back in the form of a 10-year balloon payment, da-da-da. And uh, I called the realtor, told him, and he called me back about an hour later and said, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, why? And he said, well, it's your property. So uh, for us, it was a huge, huge thing. Uh, we still live there. We, we love it. Uh, we've raised our kids there. And uh, over the years, we uh, remodeled the house and then expanded it two or three times. 
we're very comfortable there. And more importantly, we're surrounded by our grapevines. And when I'm home, I get up every morning and the first thing I see are my grapevines. And that's, that's an inspiring early morning wake-up call. Why did you choose to plant Bordeaux grape varieties on that ranch? Uh, we had the soil tested. Uh, in those days, there weren't a lot of soil testing companies, uh, businesses, but we uh, knew of one that uh, was owned by a fellow that I liked and trusted. He came out and dug some test holes, and he said, this is really good uh, Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot land. Merlot, you, you know, is a contradictory grape. It likes uh, well-drained soil, but it also likes clay because uh, clay has a tendency to hold moisture. The Merlot vines are a little bit more vigorous than Cabernet Sauvignon. They need a little bit more water later in the season. So the property was uh, a south-facing slope. It, the entrance starts at about uh, 400 feet and it rises to a, a elevation of about 1,200 feet. So we planted the lower elevation, the four to 600 feet elevation to Merlot. And there was another parcel on the other side of the creek that was also very uh, rich in clay, and we planted that to Merlot as well. So the, the idea at the time, and you know these things aren't really taking place with uh, one, of, one of the great viticultural thinkers of the 20th century. Uh, but Barbara and I felt that what we could do is uh, originally plant Merlot, wait until we got a crop, use the revenue from that, and then plant Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon would take longer before we realized any return on it. The vines are also more vigorous. Cabernet is a, a very vigorous variety, and uh, we wanted to plant it in the hills, which were really rocky. And the geological phenomenon that this soil scientist pointed out to us that was particularly interesting was that the creek that now flowed through our property almost at the southern boundary had at one point, a couple gazillion years before, uh, flowed through what was now the hills in the rear of the property, the northernmost part of the property. That creek was displaced and it was flowing now in a completely different part of the property. But the gravel that had been part of the creek bed for so long was now at the top of the hill. And that's where we planted Cabernet. So we were able to go up to a higher elevation, plant Cabernet Sauvignon there, get the advantage of the gravel, get it away from the clay, and also the, the hills in that part of uh, Napa Valley are um, uh, rife with basalt, compacted volcanic ash. And basalt behaves a little bit uh, like limestone. Uh, it's a friable rock. It, it breaks easily and roots will penetrate it. So it just seemed like it was a, a natural there, uh, which was good because it was too hot to grow Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. Uh, those varieties were out, not that we would have done it anyway. We wanted a Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot vineyard. Did you plant Cabernet Franc there originally? We planted uh, Merlot the first year. Then uh, five years later, we planted Cabernet Franc. We got some Cabernet Franc budwood from Francis Ford Coppola at Inglenook. And then the year after that, we planted the Cabernet Sauvignon. And that's the year that Dave Abreu took over the, the vineyard. So he laid it out for you. Yeah, David laid it out and planted all of the, uh, the Cabernet on the property. And why did you pick that choice? At that point, through both Rick Foreman and um, a number of other people, but Helen Turley was a consulting uh, winemaker for us at the time. And Helen just said, you need to talk to, to Dave Abreu. He's the guy who you want to develop this vineyard. I called Abreu. He came out and looked at the property. We met with him a couple of times. The uh, uh, Aaron, of course, was was involved in the business then. Aaron Jordan. Aaron Jordan. And the idea of selecting Abreu really wasn't so much the mission. It was Abreu selecting you. And after several meetings, and I remember at every meeting, I gave him a bottle of Hermit Lynch French wine. Uh, and uh, after the third meeting, he came back and said, okay, 
this is a project that I like. Uh, you guys are going to be able to grow very good Cabernet Sauvignon and very good Merlot on this, and I want to be involved with it. The late 80s, people started to have problems with AXR1 in terms of phylloxera issues. Exactly. How did you lay it out, and what were you thinking at the time when some of the vineyards were falling to disease? Well, uh, again, uh, Bob Travers, uh, one of my er earliest mentors, uh, always used to make the comment, I'd rather be lucky than smart. I think I knew about as much as AXR and other rootstocks as anyone, and I had actually ordered AXR rootstock to plant on our property. Uh, but when I first moved to the Napa Valley in uh, 1972, I took a viticultural course at the Napa Junior College. It was taught by a guy named Will Nord. Uh, Will is still alive. Uh, he spent much of his career when uh, the uh, uh, Domaine Chandon business was formed. They hired him to be the director of all of their vineyards. So he was the, the guy responsible for putting together the vineyards for Domaine Chandon. He continued to teach a class on viticulture at the junior college. Uh, he started his own business, a partnership that uh, developed vineyards and sold grapes. We bought grapes from him many years uh, uh, for the past 20 years, I guess. Uh, and he was a county planning commissioner for a while. So Will was kind of the Mr. Everything of Napa Valley. And I was uh, a little bit um, concerned about how to lay out the vineyard because the property runs north and south. I wanted to plant east and west, but uh, a consultant that we were talking to suggested that we plant the rows north and south, and that seemed counterintuitive. So I called uh, Will and asked him to come take a look at the property, and he did, and he said, no, you want to plant these rows east and west, so they get uh, morning and evening sun. They get The arc of the sun goes over the entire south side or south face of the vines. Uh, and he had a couple of other suggestions, and then he said, now, what are you doing for rootstock? And I said, I've already ordered it. I'd ordered it uh, the year before after we had bought the property, and uh, uh, we had made, when you buy rootstock, you, in those days, you had to make three payments for it. A payment when it was ordered, a, a, a middle ground status payment uh, to ensure that you were still interested, and then you'd make the final payment when you picked up the rootstock. And we had made the first two payments, and Will said, are you sure you want to plan AXR? And I said, why not? And he said, uh, it's, it's got a little bit of an Achilles heel. It's got some, uh, vinifera in it. And, uh, we don't think any longer that it's going to be completely phylloxera resistant. We're seeing signs of it not being uh, resistant to this new biotype of phylloxera that's a little bit more aggressive. And, uh, I, of course, was absolutely thunderstruck, uh, to say nothing of, being disappointed. And I said, well, what do we do now? And uh, Will said, "What? well, the, the smart thing to do, I think, would be to call the nursery where you bought it and ask them if they want to buy it back from you. There's so much demand for it right now that you can probably sell it yourself at a profit, just not plant with it. I think if you plant with it, you're probably uh, uh, reducing the useful lifespan of the, the grapevines. Well, I called the nursery and they were delighted to refund my money and sell the rootstock elsewhere. Uh, they couldn't give me all of the, uh, uh, I, I wanted to get a combination by then of lower yield rootstocks. And they had uh, two that were certainly uh, uh, completely phylloxera resistant, 5BB and uh, 5C, but they were relatively new rootstock and the, the, ideal thing about both of them is that they were compatible with Merlot and they were drought resistant. Uh, the conditions out there were dry and we were planning it to Merlot. There were a couple of other things. I'd need to have my viticultural textbook with me here, but uh, general viticulture, but I, I think there were a couple of other things that made the 5BB and 5C attractive. So uh, we just pushed everything back a year and planted that vineyard 
on 5BB and 5C. I don't know whatever happened to the AXR, but everybody pretty much knows now that the AXR thing was one of the greatest disasters the, to strike the California grape growing in history. Did you look at using clonal material, or what kind of material did you use when you... Well, we, again, um, uh, we had a lot of options about clone this or clone that, and uh, the idea of, of uh, cloned vineyards was was really becoming such a uh, almost a spectator sport. You couldn't go out and sell wine those days without the person to whom you were addressing the sale say, well, what clone is this? And, uh, you'd think back and say, well, that's clone seven on 5BB. And it's the, uh, you had to have the speech pretty well prepared. And we were about just by a, a safe mix of several different clones and um, again, Will Nord suggested that we might want to look at the opportunity to buy some selection Masal Budwood from uh, Bolgu. He knew someone there. Of course, Will knew someone everywhere. So we followed that advice and uh, got some, uh, some Budwood from uh, Bolgu, not from a nursery. And it was non-clonal selection Budwood, which was particularly... Uh, unappealing to me, but it, it really didn't seem to matter that much. And then uh, in 1993, the first year I traveled to France for Kermit, I had an opportunity to meet with uh, August Clapp and his son Pierre-Marie and learned at that meeting that uh, they had planted some cornas to clone Syrah plants that they'd gotten from University of Montpellier few years earlier, and they no longer would include it in their Cornos blend, despite the fact that it was a block of Syrah on their best vineyard. And to this day, they keep that separate and do a separate bottling of Cornos. Well, I think a lot of people have learned, Levy, in the intervening 10 or 15 years, that this whole idea of uh, cloned grapevines has had some areas that were mistakes that we haven't looked at. I've talked with growers who think that the scourge of Esca that's all through Europe these days is a result of uh, having used cloned grapevines. The, the clonal grapevines are uh, vines that have only one parent, and they don't have as such a, a I'm not enough of a botanist. I'm already talking over my head a little bit. But they don't really have a uh, inherent way of uh, actively fighting some of the grapevine pests that a uh, selection missal or, or vegetatively propagated grapevine would. So that uh, really marvelous breakthrough in, in viticultural practices back in the 60s and 70s, the idea of heat-treated, virus-free, clonal selection grapevines, as wonderfully important as it was to grape growing in general in California, wasn't quite so wonderful for the people that are trying to, to make wines that are in that top tier. And now it's a, a matter of common knowledge throughout the producers that that I visit for my in my Kermit Lynch travels from Louis Barrule to Jean-Marc Rouleau to Daniel Ravier, nobody uses clones in those vineyards any longer. And what about virus? Did you have any issues with leaf roll or any other viruses like that? No, we've never had any virus. The, uh, in fact, we, uh, we started picking our, our Cabernet Sauvignon this Saturday, and I was uh, up out in the vineyard early in the morning with the head of the farming company and our winemaker, we were all meeting at first light when the, uh, the harvest began. And the, uh, the manager of the vineyard uh, made a comment. He said, I, it's great to look out here and see every single piece of grapevine that you have. There's no virus at all. In it. There's no leaf roll virus in it. So it must be interesting to traveling through Europe talking to what have with time been really recognized in this country as some of the top European 
domains and producers, while at the same time you're developing your own new winery project. Were there other things that you took from some of those encounters that you thought, oh, I'm going to take that back and implement that at Nyers? Well, yeah, I, I, absolutely there were. The um, lack of uh, finding and filtration, the absence of finding, the absence of filtration, uh, was something that was crucial to my learning process. And we don't have a lot of producers that do that. And the absence of it was uh, a, l- a little bit confidence-inspiring. So that's true on one side of it. On the other side of it, uh, we visited a producer in Chablis a few years ago who, um, when I had our, our, our winemaker, today, Orchart was with me, and Tadeo uh, uh, watched as they were uh, racking a, a tank of Chablis, and they racked it with the lees and stirred the lees up that way. And that's a process that we implemented on a, a bottling of Chardonnay that we make that we don't age in oak. So there's, uh, there's so much to learn. Uh, I, I think I might have mentioned to you that uh, in the, the last 25 years with Kermit Lynch, uh, we haven't so much had the producers spend time with us as we've had the sons and daughters of the producers spend time with us. Uh, from uh, Pierre Guillemot to uh, Edouard Brunier to Isabel Raveneau, uh, I think we've had 30 of our French producers who have... Uh, they come and stay at your home with Barbara. Yeah, they come and stay at our house. Uh, the, we, if we find can find a place for them, which we've done in some instances, they haven't really wanted to stay with us or that hasn't been an option. And we'll find a old car around the place for them to use and uh, uh, we'll feed them and uh, give them a job at the winery and Barbara will uh, typically take them back and forth to work normally and they in some instances live live at our home as our children did but it's it's a little bit different quite a bit different in fact because they become uh, a wine community part of our family rather than just a uh, a scholarly or student part of our family. And that started with Jean-Marc Rouleau. Well, it goes back certainly to 1975 when I was working at Joseph Phelps Vineyards. I had just started working for Joe in uh, March of 1975. And uh, a friend of ours who was an attorney in San Francisco had come back from a lengthy trip in, to France. He was given a I think a three-month sabbatical, and he was a Burgundy wine buff. So he spent his three months in Burgundy, uh, rented a, a house somewhere, and just traveled around and ate the food and drank the wine and met the people. And he had done a big favor for Barbara and me at one point, and uh, he uh, called me and said, I've got a favor I'd like to ask of you. We were obviously willing to do it. I said I met a young man named Jean-Marc Rouleau. I think Jean-Marc was 17 years old at the time. And he wants to come to the United States and work at a winery as an intern. Uh, as a part of his studies, he goes to wine school now. And I went to Joe Phelps and asked Joe if we'd be willing to hire him, put him on the payroll, and... Uh, if Joe was willing to do that, we would be willing to lodge him and uh, put him up in our, our house, which wasn't a very big house at the time. And Joe went along with it, and uh, Jean-Marc went along with it. So Jean-Marc moved over to California, moved to the Napa Valley. I think it was about uh, May or June of 1975. He worked through the harvest at Phelps. Uh, I think he worked until uh, November, December, and then he bought a Greyhound uh, bus pass and traveled around the U.S. on a Greyhound and uh, ended up in Wilmington, Delaware, where Barbara's parents lived, and he stayed with Barbara's mother and father for a couple more months, uh, which was a wonderful experience for all of them. Uh, Barbara's parents had two daughters, and her father suddenly had this young man who uh, uh, was just full of enthusiasm and interest, and they sort of adopted him and took him everywhere on the East Coast. 
and he went back to France. And Jean-Marc is still a great friend today, but uh, of, of equal importance, I think he's turned into one of the world's greatest winemakers at the same time. So you made the decision to purchase land in Con Valley for a vineyard, but then you located your winery at the base of Pritchard Hill. Well, we tried for years to build the winery on our property, but uh, this was after the, in 1990, uh, Napa Valley passed what was called the, the Winery Definition Ordinance, which was very much enlightened politics. The, the Napa Valley was growing far faster and much less controlled than it needed to or could really afford to. Uh, the winery definition ordinance was very controversial, but it was the right thing at the right time. Maybe not even enough of the right thing at the right time. But um, the, the heart of the, the provisions undertaken by the uh, winery definition ordinance were to restrict winery construction or development under several circumstances, one of which involved slopes. Uh, you don't want to build a winery building on a slope that's too steep or you'll create erosion problems. Uh, one is to locate the winery uh, too close to uh, a year-round body of water. All of those year-round bodies of water in, in uh, Napa Valley eventually flow into uh, the Napa River. And the Napa River provides uh, uh, water for a variety of things, from uh, uh, life-sustaining things to sports activity. Moreover, the uh, aquifer provides fresh water for the, the city of Napa. So construction around or near uh, a, a body of fresh year-round water uh, is, is a concern. And then the, uh, the third thing was uh, locating a winery too close to a county-maintained road. Well, all three of those restrictions were going to be violated if we built the winery on our property. We couldn't get it far enough from the road or from the creek without getting it onto a slope. So we basically uh, uh, tried for three years and then uh, decided to lick our wounds and uh, look around. And almost immediately, we found a place that uh, had already been issued a use permit for winery construction. We determined that the use permit was indeed valid. And it was only about a 15-minute drive from our home. So that was uh, uh, cause enough for us to make the decision that we made. We bought that property, built the winery, moved in to occupy the winery in 1999. So before you built the winery, you were working out of the Rumbauer facility. Correct. Rumbauer Winery, uh, north of St. Helena, is owned by uh, Kerner Rumbauer and the late Joan Rumbauer. And Kerner and Joan uh, built the winery, oversized it uh, substantially because they could get a use permit to do that. And it was part of Kerner's overall plan that he would be a custom crush facility in order to develop some cash flow that would enable him eventually to increase the size of the winery. Which was kind of an early model for that, which is not really common, right? Custom uh, crush. It, it, was a, it was a bizarre concept at the time. Uh, I, I think that everyone from the county officials down to the people that actually ended up renting the space looked at it and thought, my goodness, what is this? But it was an idea that made a great deal of sense. And in a sense, like legislation would pass that would make it harder to build your own winery, like you were just talking about. Exactly. And someone realized that they could build a bigger winery and then rent out space. Exactly. Get the permit such that the building is large enough to accommodate not only your production, but the production from several other people. And at the same time, there was uh, an economy, an obvious economy of scale. Uh, most of the equipment that a winery depends on for the annual harvest is used for four or five or six weeks a year. It's, it's not the most efficient way to run a business to have your single greatest uh, capital expenditure idle for 90% of the year. So doubling up the use or tripling up the use of a crusher, stemmer, fermentation tank, forklift trucks, 
all of that stuff made, makes a lot of sense, made a lot of sense then, and it makes a lot of sense now. So Helen Turley was your first winemaking consultant? Yeah. Um, in 1992, I made the wines myself at Rumbauer. I relied on uh, a former colleague to help me out, but I was comfortable making the wines myself at Rumbauer. In 1993, Aaron had suggested to me that we contact Helen Turley. And when I met up with Helen, uh, she was uh, interested in the position to a large extent, I think, because her husband, John Wetloffer, was a, a wine retailer who specialized in the wines of Burgundy. And he was uh, interested in a relationship with me because of my involvement with Kermit, I think. So uh, Helen started working with us. A year later, Aaron came back from uh, Kornos and went to work for Rumbauer initially. So he was there to, to look after the wines, which took a little bit of pressure off of me. Well, that was something you finessed. You asked Kerner if Aaron could be a Rombauer employee to look after your wines. I, I think I did. I, it's a long time ago. I, I wish I could say exactly that I knew that I did. But one way or another, uh, Aaron ended up going to work for Rumbauer. So he was there uh, also being paid by me to look after uh, the Nyers wines. And in that case, uh, with Helen's assistance. And then we met periodically with Helen. Uh, we met uh, periodically with Kerner, and I met periodically with Aaron. So we had a number of people that were inv involved with it. And I was uh, also noticing that the Kermit Lynch business was growing pretty substantially at that point. Uh, we were increasing the number of producers and increasing the number of distributors, and it was becoming increasingly clear to me that I was going to have to make a decision. I really couldn't uh, do both the way I had done both in 1992 or 1993. So uh, we hired Aaron as a full-time employee. Helen at that point was still a full-time consultant, and I was able to take more time away from the Nyers wines and devote that to the Kermit Lynch project. And the Kermit Lynch business needed it at that time. And so when you source all that Chardonnay in the second year, it was mostly Chardonnay for white, right? That was sourced from Carneros? It was uh, almost exclusively Chardonnay. There was one aberrational year when we made some Riesling. But uh, Chardonnay from Coombsville, Chardonnay from Yountville, Chardonnay from Sonoma Carneros, Chardonnay from Napa Carneros, and then we ran into um, a really fascinating vineyard that was owned, uh, again, a family connection. It was owned by the uh, younger brother of one of my former colleagues at the wine importing company in San Francisco. Um, a guy named Dade Period had joined the company soon after I did, and Dade ended up buying the company when the two owners decided they wanted to retire. And Dade had, uh, has a younger brother named Cam, and Cam was born and raised in California and grew up in Sonoma County and had a, a really good touch as a grape grower, I thought. And he had a beautiful piece of land over on the Sonoma coast, just west of Occidental. It was up on the top of the hill looking down on the Pacific Ocean, one of the most spectacular vineyards in California. We were visiting some vineyards in that part of uh, the state back in 1994, and we ran across this vineyard. I saw his name, uh, Tyriot, and I thought, yeah, I wonder if he's related to Dade Tyriot, uh, my old friend. And I contacted Dade, and Dade said, yeah, that's my younger brother, Cam. He's trying to find somebody to buy his grapes. He was selling his grapes to a, a bunch of home winemakers. They would show up with a tub and pick grapes, and he would sell them to them by the pound. So uh, Aaron drew up a contract, and we agreed to buy the entirety of his production. And we worked with him for the next 10 years. But that was the, uh, the furthest away that uh, we went from Carneros. 
but we had a good a, a good idea in those intervening years, Levy. We had a sense of I was beginning to get my own understanding of Chardonnay terroir. What was it about the the vineyards in Coombsville that made the wine different from the vineyards in Yountville that made the wines different from the vineyards on the Napa side of Carneris and uh, the Sonoma side of Carneris and then the hillsides. And all of that data had never really been compiled too much. I remember talking with Mark Bixler back in those days. Mark was one of the partners in Kistler Vineyards. And Mark did a, a great deal to, uh, uh, to give me a sense of what to expect from those different vineyards. But still, it was uh, a, a learning curve that a lot of people were, were climbing at the time. I think Lee Hudson was probably the furthest along just because his vineyard holdings are substantial and they're all, he's got a range of uh, uh, selections and clones and uh, a range of soils and a range of rootstocks. And Lee's so, so methodical that he kept uh, this really serious book of records of what to expect from the different parcels. But it was really the winemakers who could make wine from them and say, oh, I have to be careful about using champagne yeast on this or something like that. I mean, you had a lot of relationships with people who are thought of as really great white winemakers and really great Chardonnay producers. I know you're very close with Andre Ostertag. I have been for many years. You already mentioned Rulo and that relationship, and you visited Koch and Ravenel. So were some of those observations or from other growers in the Kermit Lynch portfolio or other visits that you had, did they influence your own thoughts about Chardonnay production? The, the first years that I, I worked for Kermit, uh, 93 through 99, I think, uh, the first six years, Aaron was with me on one of my Kermit Lynch trips every year. And our uh, winemaker today, Borchardt, who's been with me now for uh, 15 years, has been to uh, France with me on uh, those trips, uh, I don't know, nine or ten times, I'd guess. And it's just a, a fascinating thing. to. It's almost like the, the growers in France feel flattered by attention paid to them by a winemaker from California. And it's not so much that they're willing to divulge these state secrets, but they are. They, they seem to want to help. Uh, Terry Alamon stands out. Uh, Algus Clapp stands out. Algus's grandson, uh, Olivier Clapp, was uh, an intern. And Olivier lived with us for a year and worked at the winery in 2006. Uh, we learned a lot of things about Syrah from Olivier. We learned a lot of things about Syrah from Thierry Alamond, and he, uh, we brought him wine uh, on a number of occasions, and he would try it and uh, make this or that observation. There, there's a, a, a lot to be learned, but I don't think that in hindsight, I look back and say we learned all that much about winemaking. We learned much more about grape growing. And what were some of those points? The, uh, the issue of yield, the issue of water, uh, water management, canopy management. Uh, it's funny, I see these things as, or, or hear about them, learn about them uh, from producers in France, and then it seems like a year or two later, particularly when we were working with Abreu, the 10-year run that we had with Dave Abreu, uh, he would go to Bordeaux every year after the harvest and come back with a, a new piece of equipment. And the equipment wasn't really uh, sophisticated winemaking equipment. It was uh, one device that he brought back uh, from Bordeaux was a, a hedger. And when you look at an Abreu-managed vineyard in the Napa Valley, Ten years ago, you could always tell what they were because they were so well hedged. Now everybody does it. Abreu uh, brought back the first spader, a more sophisticated type of plow 
that actually turns over the soil in a, in a better way. Uh, we bought one for our own vineyards because I liked the results for it. So the, the, it was the vineyard operations that, to me, were the, the most educational. I looked at a Rue vineyard recently, and it, it seemed to have dappled sunlight on the leaves. It seemed like the canopy had managed, so there wasn't a lot of direct sunlight onto the grapes. Well, the idea that uh, Dave always had was that you want the sun to come on only one side of the vine, and that was the side that you, you didn't adjust the canopy too much. You didn't remove laterals. It was Dave's, uh, I, I think, I want to give him the credit for uh, having come up with the idea of removing the uh, larger leaves, the basal leaves that are the oldest leaves and the first to, uh, to die turn brown, and uh, they send uh, a lot of their nutrients back into the vine when there's still fruit on the vine. And that we've learned is uh, a mixed blessing. It tends to alter the pH of the, the grapes when they're harvested. So Dave goes through now and cleans all those leaves off before they uh, have an opportunity to fall off. Dave does a lot of leafing on vineyards before they're harvested in order to uh, uh, maximize the exposure to the non-sunshine side of the grapevine. All of that sort of thinking, I think, is, is very much stuff that Dave would say he learned in the course of his his trips to uh, to France. So one of the ones that I always thought Aaron Jordan has had a real handle on his whole career, and one of the wine types is Syrah. Seems like his Syrahs are always quite good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they are, and I I think that uh, if Aaron were were here today, he'd probably say the two years that he spent in Cornos uh, were the most important two years in his uh, his life in his education, anyway. I visited Aaron both those years. He was uh, he traveled with me through France on on my trips uh, for Kermit, and then when he came back, uh, we found Syrah, uh, a couple of different Syrah vineyards, and I was excited about the prospect of uh, seeing Aaron at work. And he approached it uh, with this great sense of meticulous care. We did a huge amount of experimental lots for very, very little wine. If you were to visit Nyer's Winery right now, you'd see that half of our fermentation facility is designed with open-top fermenters, and that's almost exclusively for Syrah, Grenache, and Morvedre for our own varieties because we crush all those grapes by foot, and you need to have access to the must in order to do that. So... Uh, those wines comprise maybe 15% of our production, but they take up 50% of our production space. And Aaron had the idea that we do that. And then Tadeo has since embellished it by adding the uh, cement tanks uh, and the foudre uh, that we have that are now a crucial part of our winemaking. So, uh, Aaron gave me, and those were not ideas that I approached the winery with. I had uh, very parochial ideas about how I was going to make the wine, and Aaron was uh, very enlightening. Tadeo has followed on that enlightening process, but uh, Helen Turley brought her own whole set of, of ideas, and so did Dave Abreu. You personally have always had an affinity for Morvedra. I have. I don't know uh, when I'd say I started understanding and appreciating Morvedra, but it was certainly back in the uh, early days of Chez Panisse. I remember in 1975, uh, I had uh, my first year at Joseph Phelps Vineyards. We had a friendship with Alice Waters at Chez Panisse at the time. Alice was in a difficult spot because she wanted to have a special wine made for Chez Panisse. She had found the grapes from a grower uh, named Frank Del Porto up in Amador County. And the winery that had agreed to make the wine farm was forced to back out at the last minute. 
she mentioned it to me, and uh, I told Joe Phelps about it, and Joe said, yeah, we can do that. So we ended up making the private label Zinfidel for Shape and East Restaurant, and they turned it into a festival. It was a week-long festival of meals, and the meals were all from recipes developed by Richard Olney. I said to Alice, who's Richard Olney? And, of course, after she picked herself up off the floor, you don't know Richard Olney? Uh, she uh, told me about him, and uh, ironically, Richard was coming to California soon thereafter. I met him, we had dinner together, and we had a bottle of Domaine Tampier. And I thought, what is this? I It's almost felt like... Uh, wow, we're wasting an otherwise wonderful evening having this bottle of wine that I'm not going to like. Well, I liked it. And soon after that, I bought some from Gerald Asher. Gerald Asher imported Domaine Tampier to California before Kermit did. And I uh, I grew fond of it. A couple of years later, I want to say it was maybe 1978 uh, uh, or so, the Peyros, Lulu and Lucien, came to the Napa Valley. And we spent uh, maybe three nights having dinner with them. And at that point, I began to recognize, I had some old Domaine Tampier, and I began to recognize the, the style and the freshness, the flavor. And uh, I have to say, the, the, the flaws of Tampier. Tampier is a wine that always seemed to have something going on with it. Uh, no two bottles were ever the same. And I just found that whole idea fascinating. But uh, when I'm home, I probably have Morvedra a couple nights a week at home. Barbara likes it. I like it. I've got a pretty uh, big collection of it. I'm sorry I don't have all the old magnums that I used to have, but uh, these days, it's hard for me to even get a squeeze a case out of our tiny allocation. And the demand for Domaine Tampier and Gros Noré and Terrebrun, Tordebon, the four, we now import four wines from Bandol. Uh, the demand for them is extraordinary. We have to allocate a wine that I used to travel around the country uh, having to tout and uh, force people to drink. You decided to start sourcing some Movedra of your own to make. Well, in the course of our relationship with one grower, uh, we learned that he had some Movedra in his vineyards. And the wine had been made by Ridge a few years earlier. Paul Draper got me a bottle of the wine, and I really liked it. I don't know why Ridge decided against it, but I suspect that they had uh, some good reasons. So we began to make wine from that. That was our first uh, varietally labeled Morvedra. I think it was uh, 1996 that we did that. Over time, those vines, uh, as old as they were, had to be pulled out. And as a consequence of that, uh, they were replanted with younger vines, but it became a little bit less interesting to me. And I began to focus on some other things. We since found... Uh, another source of Morvedra, and then yet a third source. And um, we have a small parcel of land on our property now, and we're going to plant that to Morvedra next year. You have been working with Evangelo Morvedra. Exactly. And what would you say the character of that is? You bottle it on its own. We do. We take our uh, uh, Morvedra from the Evangelo Vineyard, and a portion of it is blended into a Rhone blend, Rhone varietal blend that we call Sage Canyon Red. Then uh, another portion of it is set aside in small barrel aged and bottled as varietal Morvedra from the Evangelo Vineyard. And I, uh, I, I like the similarities that exist between Morvedra in France, in Morvedra, in California. It's almost like it's the closest uh, approximation of its French counterpart of all the grape varieties that we deal with. And how have you found it handling Grenache versus handling Mouvedra or Syrah? Because they seem so different. Well, the, I think uh, Grenache is the toughest grape to work with. It's a large grape. It tends to 
to turn easily in the vineyard. Syrah is the toughest wine to make because it requires uh, so many uh, separate steps. The decision about maceration time and stem uh, percentage, stem retention, uh, those decisions are really important with Syrah. Not that they're unimportant with the others, but it's uh, uh, really almost life or death with Syrah. And uh, Morvedre is, is also a user-friendly grape. I think winemakers uh, can easily fall in love with it, not only because it's so much fun to drink, but because it's kind of fun to make. And it's forgiving. Must be interesting for you to make the Sage Canyon and blend those grape varieties and get a result like sometimes often they're blended in, say, Chateauneuf de Pop. Exactly. Uh, that was really an idea that originated with uh, Daniel Brunier. When I started working with Kermit in 1992, at one point he said that Daniel Brunier wanted to come to the U.S. Uh, and, and travel with me. So we arranged to, to travel together in the uh, uh, in May of 1992. We got along very well. I admired uh, him a great deal. And I loved the wine. I'd drunk Butelegraph for years, uh, bought it and cellared it. And the opportunity to travel with him and spend some time with him was, was probably the, really the start of what I think of as uh, my wine career 2.0. The, the fact is that I've learned so much from him over the years. Both of his children, his son and his daughter, have lived with us for extended periods of time and uh, worked at the winery. And maybe a year or two later, uh, after my first trip with Daniel, uh, he, he loves things American. When I travel with him, uh, if, if there's some way we can drive through an area rather than fly over it, he wants to drive. He wants to rent a car. And uh, we drove once from Portland, Maine to New Hampshire down to uh, Manhattan. We finished up the day at, at Manhattan in time for a, a dinner after having left Portland, Maine at six in the morning or so, but he wanted to see that area. We had an opportunity to drive through Northern California wine country, basically from the Sierra to uh, the Sonoma Coast once, and we drove by all these old vines and different soils and he was just mesmerized by it and said, you really need to, to try to make a blended wine, Bruce. You need to find some of these uh, old varieties that we grow in the Rhone, Grenache and Morvedre and uh, Carignan and Syrah. Uh, but he said, you need to find them planted in uh, terroirs of interest and you need to have old vines I asked about the old vines, and he said, because you want low yields. The yield for Grenache, the maximum yield for Grenache in Chateauneuf de Pop is 35 hectoliters per hectare. That's two and a third tons per acre. Nobody grows Grenache uh, in California at two and a half tons per acre. You'd go broke. Uh, but if you find old Grenache, the vines more or less restrict the yield themselves. The same thing with old Morvedre or old Carignan. So it took a while for us to find those varieties, but now that we have, we have an arrangement with four different growers. We buy the grapes from four different vineyards. We made the blend, the Sage Canyon blend, which I think is a great triumph. And... Um, the the wine really shows uh, some of the characteristics that I find in, in French wines that are similar of similar blends. Uh, but the, the breakthrough moment was finding uh, old vine sources of these wines. Prior to that, I think we just simply didn't have the character. Well, Making the wines as separate varietals gives us an opportunity to see that, that side of the, the grape as well. So we bottle a little bit of each of those four as a separate variety as well. So you started in Napa, but you source some areas that are outside of Napa today. Yeah, our, uh, again, part of the winery definition ordinance in 1990 
was a requirement that a winery make, I think it's 90% of its wine or 75% of its wine from Napa Valley grapes, which, uh, well, whether it's reasonable or not, it's there, it's the law. And we're fortunate the property that we bought had a use permit that was issued prior to the winery definition ordinance enactment date. And as a consequence of that, we're not required to do that. And we have an opportunity. And as a result of that uh, opportunity, we've acted on our own personal interest. We've looked at a lot of areas and we found Morvedra here and Morvedra there and Old Vine Carignan here and Syrah here. Uh, uh, that to me is uh, a great part of the, the history of California. The, the land really does offer a wide range of opportunities. France does too, but in France, they've been basically restricted to one or two different varieties in each one of those regions. That's just not something that we have to deal with in California. And when did Tadeo arrive at the winery? Uh, Tadeo started with us in 2000 and I guess it was 2001. He was the originally the assistant winemaker. Actually, he was a, just a, a guy in the cellar to start and then became the assistant winemaker. And then a couple of years later became the winemaker. How do you think the wineries evolved under his watch? Oh, I, I think uh, we're at the best stage we've ever been. Tadeo has a great work ethic. He has a great care and attention to detail. And he really understands what I like in our wines. The trips that he's accompanied me to, uh, to France, we've drunk a lot of wine together uh, in a lot of grape-growing regions of France. And it, it's almost like he, uh, he reads my lips. He said, this is a, a Bruce wine. And he's absolutely right. I, I like the wines that, uh, it, it's good that Kermit and I got uh, hooked up. I, I really think that, that Kermit's one of the most talented people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing in my life. And not to say that Bob Travers and Joe Phelps weren't. They were both very talented people, but Kermit has this magnificent ability to taste a hundred wines and say, that one. And I can't do it. Uh, so I just follow his lead, and I, I drink a lot of his wines. I like the, the flavor profiles that he likes, and maybe I've just developed a house palate, but I don't think so. I, I think I've got my own dis discrimination sense, and I, I just find that having Kermit uh, discriminate before me uh, is, is a good idea. We lost two people this year, this past year, that were parts of your life, Joe Phelps and Noel Versay. I wonder if you might like to comment on either. Oh, I, I, uh, yeah, I'd like to comment on both. Uh, Joe Phelps, what can I say about Joe? Uh, he took me under his wing at a time in my life when I really needed somebody like that. The amount of time and energy that uh, Joe devoted to me, I look back on it now and I say, what was that all about? What could you ever have gotten out of that, Joe? And I think he got out of it what he wanted to get out of it. Uh, it wasn't like he, he came to me to, to learn anything. He enjoyed my company, I think, and he enjoyed talking about uh, wine with me. And the, the greatest, he paid me a lot of great compliments over the, the years, Levy, but I think the greatest comment he ever paid me was when uh, he, uh, he hired me and he said, uh, you showed me a sense of focus on wine that has been something that has worked for me ever since. And yeah, I, I admit to that. I was so focused on wine when I went to work for Joe my goodness, I, uh, I worked full-time uh, at a winery. I drove to San Francisco two nights a week to teach classes 
at uh, UC Berkeley Extension in San Francisco. I worked part-time at a wine shop on Saturday, and I had at least two wine tasting groups that I was devoted to. And that was my life with wine. Uh, there wasn't really anything else I could do. It was wonderful that we didn't have children at the time and that Barbara uh, has always been uh, so supportive of what it was I wanted to do. And Joe recognized that, and um, he, uh, he gave me a lot of opportunities as a result of, of my focus and my intensity on it. He liked it. I, uh, I, I loved him like a father. And I miss him terribly. Noel Versailles died. And it, it kind of caught me. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a, a blow. Uh, Noel was in his uh, 90s. It wasn't a big surprise. He'd been um, out of the wine business for several years. But I think that if, if I had to look back on my life with Kermit, my career with Kermit, and say, well, here are the one or two or three people who really made a difference, uh, who really captured my imagination and made me want to strive to, to continue to be part of it. Noel would, it would certainly be one. Noel was, um, uh, I think, Dixon Brook, in his note, he said he was a kind and gentle man. And um, what could be more apt about Noel Versailles? He was a kind and gentle man. The fact that he happened to be one of the most uh, talented winemakers uh, in, in history is another thing entirely. But he was a kind and gentle man. And he just so loved what he did. He so loved it. And that was, that was inspirational to to watch someone who had devoted his entire life to that. And that's hard work. You don't grow grapes and make wine in Kornos and approach it as uh, a lover of uh, <laughs> free time. It's, it's a, a commitment, an arduous commitment that uh, is not replicated in many places in the world or in many careers. And Noel, I just got a sense that's all he ever wanted to do. And he did it so well. What an inspiration that you could meet someone uh, in your life. And I think back on it. I uh, I tasted wine with Noel probably 40 times, certainly 30. Um, if I count two trips a year plus the other times that I traveled through uh, the Rhone and would stop it and see it was, uh, I don't know that uh, the last time he saw me, if he even really knew my name, uh, but he uh, he knew who I was. He would recognize my face. There was always a table at his uh, uh, dining room kitchen for me, and there was always a nice bottle of wine to share. Uh, yeah, what a memory. Bruce Nyers, there was always a nice bottle of wine to share. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Larry. Bruce Nyers of Nyers Vineyard and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchants. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.